1: It's another episode of the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob.
2: I'm Marcus Goldman.
1: And Marcus, you know what I realized, man? I was
2: reading an article and it was
1: talking about 30 years down the line and, you know, you don't expect the next thing you see to be the year 1991, <laughs> which to me is prime territory
2: as far as rock music for me
1: and life and everything else. And 30 years later, all of a sudden it's 30 years?
2: Phew. And that music's being played on a classic rock station. Thirty years, right now, age. all <laughs> the It was a monumental year in music. We've had a podcast about the importance of 1971. We also have looked at, in our research, that 1981 was a huge year in music, and then here we are falling into 1991 30 years later, and it was a powerful year for music as music was changing in the rock and roll world. We were going from the decadence and the complete insanity of the hair era to more of a quote-unquote grungy era, and the music really had a lot of power. It was also the year my father passed away from Lou Gehrig's disease, and so a lot of the music I listened to at that time period probably was tied to what I was going through at home. And it was still, and I look back at that time even though it's a hard time, fondly because of the music, and I still listen to a lot of that music today as I know you do from our many conversations and our many events that we've gone together over the last 15, 20 years. So, yeah. you know, we've seen all this and we've experienced all this later on. And you were doing this live with the Rocker Show as Dude, it was blowing up. Dude, I was up.
1: like in fuego. I was living the life in 1991. I was on the radio playing the music. I was living and writing about it at the Friday Morning Quarterback. And it was 110% of me. And the music that was coming out in 1991, from the beginning, was strong, but would not portend for the end of 1991. And what would happen by the time we got to Christmas buying season?
2: Ugh the music that year was legendary.
1: So all this gets us around to thinking about that year, that maybe we should be doing an episode of Five Favorites, and I tell you, I thought about a bunch of different little chunks that we could have just done and done two or three different lists of Five Favorites within the whole year, and though we decided, no, let's just take our best shot at trying to figure out what our Five Favorites were from the whole year, all the music. Because not only was hairband music happening and grunge on the... rise there were other bands traditional artists that had already been established who were also making great music through this whole period and in through 1991 well you know marcus whenever i think about doing an episode of five favorites here on the imbalanced history of rock and roll sponsored by crooked eye brewing pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014 i always wonder what vegas Will give us for a line, and here we go to Vegas for what this episode's line will be.
2: Well, Vegas says that due to the fact that they've followed our podcast, they're taking a gamble on 2.5 as the over-under due to the fact that they know our taste from around that time.
1: Wow, they're good, except for one thing. What's that? The fact that... I may once again cause Vegas to tell us to go fuck ourselves over the bet. Now they're going to take the bet, whatever we put in. That they're going to take it, but that doesn't mean they're going to pay. True. Just so you know. True. Because we've encountered this before. So, knowing what you know in your personal mental computer, Vegas says two point five. Marcus says two. 2.0, 2.0, and I think Vegas is on to something, so I'm going to bet a three in common out of our five favorites on this episode of the podcast, and I think, honestly, Marcus, with that, you may have the best opportunity to score a win Which you haven't had in a while on an episode of Five Favorites, by the way.
2: Uh, I actually think you might win this one. I think you might uh, be closer. I'm looking at my stuff. I'm looking at mine too, but we will see.
1: So what
2: happened in 1991 was a
1: lot. And I think we probably should just jump in Mm -hmm. and start doing our five favorites, because I don't know about you, but I have a number of honorable mentions, and then there are so many records that were amazing, and I'm not even going to get to all the things that I liked, Mm -mm. just the ones that really made a difference in my world in 1991, and then
2: stayed with me. I think that's a grand idea, because I actually have a huge list of honorable mentions. This was one of the most challenging five favorites to put together that we have done yet.
1: Agreed. And agreed. All right. I'll jump in with my number five.
2: All righty, Ray. What is your number five?
1: It's an album from one of my all-time favorites, a person who I became personally connected to and ran this time. It also connected to him, the artist, to one of my favorites, Lemmy. Their songwriting together on the album No More Tears, released September 17th, just as the grunge explosion was about to go off, is my number five Ozzy Osbourne's No More Tears.
2: I remember when that album came out, and I think at that point, I still liked Ozzy, but I wasn't as into Ozzy as Ozzy at that time because my tastes were evolving, which you will see from my list as well as my honorable mentions. And no disrespect to Ozzy. Always loved Black Sabbath, always loved Ozzy, but I just don't think I was listening to Ozzy as much at that time period because my tastes were changing.
1: I don't think you're alone, and I think that's why No More Tears became viewed as a big comeback album for him. Your number five, Marquez?
2: My number five, I saw this band open up for Dinosaur Jr. literally two weeks after my father passed away. I don't remember a lot of the details of the show. Their song had not blown up to change the world at this point. They were the opening band for Dinosaur Jr. And I'm talking about Nirvana and Nevermind. And while in radio we have played the daylights out of this album it's still a great album up and down and when it came out it had a huge impact on me and it made me look at music completely different and seeing them live I remember them being great I don't remember a lot of details but I don't remember a lot of details about those three or four weeks after my father passed anyways I didn't
1: know that you had gone to see Nirvana that close to your dad's passing so I understand why it's a blur and why it could be cathartic as well and also to see Dinosaur jr there too as well great show sometimes music can help us to blow out those hard feelings Mm -hmm. and difficult feelings that are inside us because of something like losing a a parent or other loved one and Mm -hmm. you're number five nirvana never mind and you know somewhere that's going to figure in absolutely
2: i know that that's a one ding i'm like okay my one
1: one ding
2: because you mentioned ozzy and i'm like okay there's one that we're not gonna have but again Again, it's still a great album, and again, a lot of love for Ozzy, but yeah, we were changing at that time. Ready for my number four, Ray?
1: I'm sitting here with bated breath, so let me take the worms out of my mouth, and you give us your number four.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That same summer, Ian Asbury did a show called Gathering of the Tribes which was the precursor to Lollapalooza in so many ways. And one of the bands that played that day took the stage with their crazy sound as I was peeking on mushrooms, the second to last time (laughs) I did mushrooms. Full disclosure, full honesty And I was so blown away by what I saw on that stage That I ended up listening to that album Over and over and over for years And to this day, my favorite live Primus song Is those damn blue collar tweakers And I'm talking about Sailing the Seas of Cheese, Primus That album is number four on my list
1: it is an amazing album, and I looked at that and said, man, you played that a lot on your show and you listened to it a lot at the time, but I couldn't get it onto my list, let alone make my top five. Your number four from Primus on this episode of the imbalance history of rock and roll. It's a five favorites thing.
2: Yep. Yeah, right now, we need to get to your number four.
1: Well, it's easy for me. In a lot of ways, 1991 and 92 were all about the pit. The Snake Pit, Metallica's Black Album. Saw them here, saw them at their 14 million selling platinum album award party in New York. Saw them in Pittsburgh in a night that will legendarily live in the minds of anyone who experienced it. And one of the great moments for me is at this place in New York. It's like a club. Everybody's there excited. The guys show up. And I actually bump in back-to-back back with Hetfield. And he turns around he goes, hey, I've been looking for you. It's good to see you, Kate. You're like, holy shit, you know? We're just radio guys, yeah. great guys. But they were glad I was there. I mean, I knew Cliff and Peter as managers long before I knew Metallica and all that but it just felt good to be there and be welcome. That makes that my number four. The Night in Pittsburgh is an episode unto itself.
2: I definitely think we should do an episode on that at some point. If you
1: really want to get an insight to it, maybe we should have him and uh, the other uh, consort for that night. Uh, festivities. Uh, Rockstar Rob would be there. And uh, so would Johnny D from Britney Fox. Mm-hmm. It's a long story and a fun one. We don't have time for it here on this episode of Five Favorites.
2: I'll tell you what, that Black album's fantastic. I remember when it came out. I was a little later to the Metallica party. I heard And Justice in college in, I think, '88 when it came out. And I remember seeing the video for one and being blown away by it, going, Oh my God, these guys are so good at what they do and i like the black album and dig metallic it's not
1: even my favorite metallic album
2: no but it's a great it, album yeah in a great year of is. music
1: in an amazing year of music it stood up to everything absolutely. and kicked its ass absolutely and that's why it's my number four and now my number three Doesn't fit into any of the stuff we've been talking about, except for one little tiny vein. Great artists delivering great albums in a year of musical change and challenge. And these guys continue to roll that they'd already been on. With an album called Octoon Baby, I'm talking about U2, my number three. On this episode of Five Favorites, our favorite albums of 1991, yes, it still gets heavy rotation here on the old pod thing I have over here in the corner
2: can't complain about that album it's a great album and it shows even though they made change and they evolved as a band they still put out a consistent high quality album and they do that all the time I think that they hold back
1: until they're sure it's that good, and then they put something out. They won't put out, oh yeah, let's do that. Oh yeah, we didn't really like those two songs that much, but put them on anyway. It doesn't work that way for them, and that's how they keep going, I think. I think you're right. Before the mid-roll, we've got time for your number three... On this episode of Five Favorites, my friend.
2: Alrighty. My number three is I'm bending the rules because these two albums are so closely tied. <laughs> you have tied. no
1: idea what you're in for.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but these two albums are very tied together as they're part of the year that was a big change for rock and roll. I remember hearing Alive and being just walloped by that opening riff and that song moving me to the core. And then within a few days, hearing Temple of the Dog's album. So I'm talking about Pearl Jam 10 and Temple of the Dog as my number three because of their close relation and because of their importance. Both of those albums were therapeutic and were definitely in high rotation because of their power and their rawness and their beauty. They're great As albums. I look
1: to my right and I see my double platinum for Pearl Jam 10, you know I understand
2: completely. Absolutely. And even songs that don't get played on the radio very much, like Reach Down. Every song. Every, you know, song, every song. Every song on song. both of those albums is fantastic.
1: That's why I never play any of the normal hit songs in the middle of the night. I am yeah. work playing Porch or... Pushing Forward Back. Why go? You got, I got my... Li- listen. yeah I got a list. So I understand you're number three there because it's just one of the most amazing debut albums of our times. It really is. Temple of the Dog, which actually came out in April, was mm-hmm. already on my radar as well. And because of the nature of it, because of my interest in the Stardog champion, Captain Hightops himself, Andrew Wood. Yeah. who passed away. I was tuned into that. And and off the launch of Pearl Jam and the success of Soundgarden, Temple of the Dog would take on a whole new life into 92 because of that. So that's your number three. And technically, I'm looking at this. I'm looking at Nirvana and Primus and Pearl Jam and Temple of the Dog. And I'm, I'm looking at Ozzy and Metallica and U2. So technically, at this point, at the mid-roll, we have zero in common, my friend. Zero which is what I was secretly afraid of, that we're really going to have none in common. But uh, that's kind of where we are right now as we head to the mid-roll. Let's roll out, and uh, I'll pick up the growler, will you? We can bring one back, and let's go have a pint at Crooked Eye in Hapro. Summertime and a great pint go together like water, yeast, and hops. (laughs) And what a better place to go to get the pint that you want than Crooked Eye Brewery right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hapro.
2: If I'm not mistaken, with Pennsylvania's restrictions easing, there is live music and some other great events going on at Crooked Eye. So not only do you get that pint, but you get to have a good time with your friends as well.
1: They are fully open, and I went in to see the Crooked Eye Band, the full Crooked Eye Band, back together for the first time in over a year. And what a great time when they're in on second Saturdays. And you can get great music at Killer Crooked Eye Near you at Jamie's House of Music in Lansdowne now. Stop on by, see live music, and have a pint of your favorites from Crooked Eye.
2: At Jamie's House of Music. Right in the heart of Delco.
1: And there's something else happening at the Brewery Marcus. They are now serving spirits. Pennsylvania Craft Spirits now available along with your finest brews and all the other goodies they have at Crooked Eye and Hatboro. I just think it helps everybody to have what they want, and that's part of having a good time when you go in both at the Hatboro Brewery location and at Jamie's House of Music, so wine and cocktails there as well. It's all part of the fun at Crooked Eye. Check them out at crookedeyebrewery.com. The best way to keep up with what's going on at both locations is is on Facebook, though.
2: They do a great job keeping us informed of what's happening at Crooked Eye or Jamie's House of Music on Facebook.
1: Or in the cure for what ails you since 2014. Check them out. Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro,
2: And in the heart of Delco.
1: Back for the second half of Five Favorites, Five favorite albums of 1991. Marcus, this has not been easy. And so far, the score is zero in common. Marcus starts out with Nirvana's Nevermind, and then sails into the seas of cheese with Primus at number four. His number three is a Cheater. It's Pearl Jam 10 and Temple of the Dog, and I'm going to let you get away with it easily because you know how much I love both those
2: records. Uh, yeah. And we had your number five, which was Ozzy Osbourne, No More no Tears.
1: No More Tears.
2: And that beautiful composition that he co-wrote with Lemmy Me Kill Meister. A masterpiece as far as ballads go. Your number four, the Metallica Black Album, and it includes a story from Pittsburgh that we will get into at a later date when we talk about Metallica. And then uh-huh. number three, the ever evolving U2 and Achtung Baby.
3: Achtung Baby!
2: <laughs>
3: Pick yourselves up and Sally Fuck! Sally Fuck!
1: Forth. All right, <laughs> plowing forth on this episode. You got to tell us about your number two favorite album of 1991.
2: I'm going to preface this by saying you are absolutely not going to be expecting this. Oh. It was the first album of a pop artist who got play on alternative radio. He eventually married Heidi Klum. His debut album is absolutely wonderful. And it was one of the albums that really helped me during my roughest times. And that is Seal's debut album, Seal. I mean, seriously, that album is wonderful with songs like Crazy and Jade. And it's just beautiful. And one of those albums that I still listen to, my wife and I got to see Seal about a decade ago and it was wonderful so there's my uh, shocker at number two with seal and his day not a album. shocker
1: at all because if you were an adult of a present mind in 1991 that album touched you in some way and i listened to it all the time and it could have been in my top five i'll just say that <laughs> and it was part of the soundtrack the day my son eric was born so it's always connected for me to that. So whenever I play it here off the uh, podcaster here in the in the kitchen, I think of him and that day.
2: Of course. What a great memory to share with that album. All righty. So now it means that you have to go to your number two, Mr. Ray.
1: My number two is part of your number three. Pearl Jam's 10 hit me like a sledgehammer. And I'd already been hit by Peter Gabriel's sledgehammer. Here's the thing. <laughs> I get the first single, and nobody's going to play it in Philadelphia. There was nobody that was going to play that song that time because of the way things were with radio. just wasn't there yet. First chance I got, I played it on Rockers. Reaction. Played it again, reaction. And eventually I got other songs. And every song that I played that had some hair on its nads, big reaction. So by the time they get around to release date on August 27th, I knew it was going to be a big reaction, and Philadelphia was one of those markets that stepped up right away and said, yeah, we like these guys. They had played Dobbs, and for some God unknown reason to this day, I didn't get to go that. I think there was something else going on with an artist that was already out or something that I had to be at, because that's how it worked in MMR and Mm -hmm. Friday morning quarterback world in those days. So I didn't go to Dobbs that night, and that's one of the few things I missed that I wish I'd been at. But I've seen them many times and continue to love going to see Pearl Jam. But that first album, every song. There's a couple that were too soft for rockers, but... Most of them weren't. And before everybody cut the uh, curse words out of everything, we would let fun fly at all hours (laughs)
2: on The
1: Rockers Show with Pearl Jam's Tim. My number two.
2: That's an excellent number two. And it's an album that will always hold deep to me. So it is my number three. So there's our one. I don't think we're going to do it, dude. I really don't think we're going to do it. What is
1: your number one, my friend? (laughs) This is the moment of truth.
2: (laughs) It is the moment of truth. (laughs) It is an album I've raved about for years. It's an album that I feel is the best album of this band from Seattle. I always like to call this album Raw Power because I think it is the best way to signify this album. Johnny Cash covered uh, Rusty Cage but the way Chris Cornell sings on this album, the way Kim Thale plays, the way Ben and uh, Matt Cameron just wail on this album, it is special. And there are songs that don't get played on the radio, like uh, Searching With My Good Eye Closed," Drawing Flies, Holy Water, uh, Somewhere, Room A Thousand Years Wide, which is my absolute favorite song on the album. Say it, brother, say it! I'm talking about Bad Motor Finger and Soundgarden, and when I first started working in rock, radio i always called them big fat sound garden on the air they had a huge sound and of the seattle bands they are still my favorite of all the seattle bands to this day and bad motor finger i think is just a raw power masterpiece
1: looking to my right and seeing <laughs> the gold award for bad motor finger i concur my imbalanced brother
2: well we need to know your number one and it looks like neither of us are going to be correct with the uh, vegas odds from what i presume
1: so what happened in 1991 was september 24th a day of change and explosion in american music and rock especially all these albums were released on september 24th 1991. status quos rock till you drop Prong. Prove You Wrong, The Cult, Ceremony, Nirvana, Nevermind, Bad Motor Finger from Soundgarden, which was highly anticipated, and Blood Sugar Sex Magic from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, all out September 24th, 1991. (laughs) Now, I am not going to try to make all of them my number one on this episode of Five Favorites, but I cannot, in good conscience, not make a three-play and call for Nevermind, Bad Motor Finger and Blood Sugar Sex Magic It's my number one out of 1991.
2: We pulled the three. You won.
1: And I can make my case. First off... The Baby Hangs in the Living Room. People from Geffen thought it would sell a couple hundred thousand. I told them if it didn't sell two million, I'd be quitting the business. When Baby showed up, it was four million. God knows how many it's gone on to sell. The Landmark album released the same day as Bad Motor Finger, which took Soundgarden to a whole other level. And all those songs you mentioned when you were talking about it being your number one, they are ingrained in my DNA. At a time in my life when I probably should have been quote-unquote done discovering new music, I was being encoded with these albums and blood sugar sex magic was another one i love that they did at that time an edited version a bleeped version of the album so people could play whatever they want i yeah. have it somewhere
2: i have the bleep but, version somewhere as well Oh, good
1: hold on to that i will. and uh the uh, cds are coming back that's the new mm-hmm. trend cds are coming back uh, but those three albums together were a large part of my listening even though the albums didn't come out until late in the year and they continued to be into 92 with three mm-hmm. and four and on so that's why they are collectively my number one and i gotta add it up and i think when you put we're three have nirvana in common from yours and pearl jam in common from both of ours and uh, 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 so we didn't have seal and Soundgarden, so it's actually three and holy cow you won i win again on another episode of five favorites here on the podcast
2: that's crazy Blood Sugar Sex Magic made my honorable mention, and I love that album dearly. It's a great album. And some of the deep cuts like Sir Psycho Sexy, My Lovely Man, um, Naked in the Rain, are some of the wonderful tracks on that album that don't get radio play. And they actually took Pearl Jam and the Pumpkins with them on the Blood Sugar Sex Magic tour later that I year. I saw
1: all those bands all around that same time yeah. and mm-hmm. for the like first time together and separately and individually. At Lollapalooza yeah. up in uh, montage and all this yeah. stuff. It was a crazy fun year, 91, yes. 92, because mm-hmm. the fallout from all this. Stuff coming out in '91 was 1992, and it really was a wonderful time to be immersed mm-hmm. in music. I'll just
2: absolutely, say that. absolutely, and that was you know a fun tour. And because of that, you know, we haven't even gotten into the honorable mentions yet, which that list is going to be absolutely. Well, insane. I got a
1: six, seven, eight. Yeah. It's like a chorus line. A five, six, seven, eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, six for me was Temple of the Dog, and I said before when you were talking about it, why? My um, love of Mother Love Bone and Andrew Wood got me in the clue there. And other than when they did their brief tour, the only other time they performed as Temple of the Dog was at a Concrete Foundations convention back when that was released and I think it was 91, and I think that was the year I saw them there, in a a hotel ballroom with about 400 other people.
2: That's crazy. That's crazy. Guns
1: N' Roses did this little thing called Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, and that came out in September and set off an immediate explosion for them, reestablishing them. With so many great songs between the two volumes, that has to be my number six, seven, eight, and number eight is an album I still listen to all the time: Diamonds and Pearls from Prince. It's just a sexy motherfucker. It's a
2: great album that made my honorable mention. I didn't have a six, seven, eight. I just started uh, listing the ones that were close to being into my top five, like The Sky Is Crying from Stevie Ray Vaughan, which is That's, a magical it, album. Monster Magnet did Spine of God that year. Yes, they did. Which can. I'm sure you were playing a little bit of that stuff on Rock. On the alternative end, while a lot of the bands like Yaz were breaking up, you had Alison Moyet release her single album, Hoodoo, which was getting a lot of play on alternative radio, and that album's fantastic. The Hoodoo Gurus, an Australian alternative power pop band, uh, released the Kinky record, which I got to see them, I think, either in 91 or 92 for the third time, and they were great. Like you mentioned, the Colts ceremony, an important album, and a great album. Lenny Kravitz released Mama Said roll the bones yeah. from rush we haven't even talked about which is a fantastic record
1: it really is and it was the first time that they really did like the full blown animation on tour mm-hmm. Uh, an incredible album and tour that I got to experience when I was working at MMR. Yep.
2: Also from Novelty Records, there was a guy who I saw on MTV called MC Nine Hundred Foot Jesus. Who had he had a song called yep. a "Welcome to My Dream," and the song was "If I Only Had a Brain." And while it's not <laughs> great, great, it was just fun, goofy.
1: Wait a minute, Novelty it's a favorite. Music. thats why you, yeah. you're, you're talking about. It. So you but, don't have to justify that yeah. to anybody.
2: But also, like Attack of the Killer Bees from Anthrax came out that year. It did. Infectious Grooves, which is a Suicidal Tendencies, Michael Muir's side project. The the play that makes your booty move is the
1: Infectious Grooves. Dude, these are all albums that I love very much, but they didn't get into my real honorable mentions because some of the albums that did have such strong reasons. Like, R.E.M.'s At a time. It was the A.R. album of the year. It had all kinds of great mm-hmm. airplay stuff on it. But yet, it was still one of my favorites because it got played a lot. Matthew's Sweet, Girlfriend. Heavy oh, yeah. rotation for two years back in, like, 91 and 92 and 93 for me. Oh, Lucky of the I'll put it on every now and then. Uh, the gold record finally came and caught up from Skid Row because they put out Slave to the Grind, which we are, by the way. Slaves to the Grind. Totally. Of beans and the uh, making of the coffee. Skid Row, to the ground. I have that hanging up in the house somewhere too. As is my uh, gold record for Typo Negatives Slow Deep and Hard. That's I a was great Rockers. album. Heaven with that album, man. They were exactly what I was looking for as a host and as a participant in what was going on with rockers in Philly then. And I know you're a big typo fan too, and you had a great interview with
2: Peter. Oh, yeah, I had a fun interview with Peter. That dude was an amazing human being, and the world could use people like Peter in this world. I'm telling you, man. The world needs people like Peter. Lurking.
1: Lurch like guys who are kind as fuck.
2: Yep. How's he had that? a great heart. Man. Speaking
1: of fuck, the album from Van Halen's the album Front Awful Carnal Knowledge. Yeah, came again, out about uh, year. that was part of my nineteen ninety one, and again I'm sorry I was wrong. Yeah. I just want to say it once again, but that was in there.
2: Luck of the draw. Go ahead, oh, ben, I wasn't go even ahead.
1: thinking of that one. Sure. That was a great album. Um she got on a roll there mm-hmm. in the 1991 uh, ninety ninety one range and really put herself into big time mm-hmm. airplay and sales and stuff. And yeah. it just it's funny because she went to Capitol and Warner's just missed it. The other thing I wanted to mention was something that was more about what stoner metal was. You mentioned uh, Windorf and Monster Magnet, but just before Nirvana, there was already stuff going on that was in that vein. Uh, Caius and their debut album Wretch came out and was a big part of our show and our culture night at Dobbs with them early on long before Queens of the Stone Age and all that stuff was really cool you mentioned Seal and I concur totally unique album in a time of change the Smashing Pumpkins the Gish album they were the real Smashing Pumpkins I was re-listening to Gish this week as we got ready for this podcast. And I was just like, yeah, man, the balls on
2: this. Dude, Rhinoceros is such a great song."
1: Oh, the whole first three, four songs all in a row.
2: You got more?
1: No, I, okay. An album that surprised me when I went back to listen in the last week as we got ready, because I needed to, was Sepultura's Arise. I played it a lot on rockers. I was a little resistant to the heaviness in it at first. And now I listen to it and it feels mainstream to me because so much about rock radio and active rock radio in the States has gotten more heavy. So that simple chore, a lot of the stuff on that, that Arise album actually feels like it could fit. Queen's Innuendo came out in 91. It was their last album with Fred. And because it came out, I got to meet Brian. And there's pictures. I'll post them. Meeting Brian May at my job at FMQB. And he brought us a present, which is pretty cool. I'll see awesome. if I can dig that out. It's a paper promo cube of the Innuendo album artwork signed by all four. I know I'm getting excited thinking about it. Also in the party pile of 1991, there's a lot of records that I won't even admit, but I will tell you that Jesus Jones's Doubt album was perhaps the, not number one, but certainly a top five party album of the year with that song right here, right now, and so many other great songs that I was having a mental flashback on. I'd set the uh, controls to the time machine a little more currently, not 1958 like we did on the
3: Beach Boys episode,
1: <laughs> and found myself in an apartment on South Street going, wow, this looks familiar. And I want to include mention of Motorhead's 1916. Not only are there great songs on that album, it's also the first time I met Lemmy in... Later, having a chance to work with Lemmy became one of those great things in my rock and roll story. So there's some uh, my extensive, uh, very extensive honorable mentions, etc.
2: Some incredible albums that just the honorable mentions alone show you how phenomenal 1991 was as far as music goes. And for some strange reason, the years on the ones seem to be very productive as far as producing good quality music. I don't know what it is. Bringing in a new decade It's just one of those wacky things that works And we were lucky in 1991 Where we were in our lives To be able to have all of this music To choose from, to listen to
1: That is absolutely the truth When you look at the list together With all the stuff we didn't mention And all the stuff that's on (laughs) our extensive honorable mentions It's like, yeah, it was a fucking party, man
2: We left so many good records off of this list that we didn't even mention that deserve to be in the honorable mention list. from
1: Cypress Hill is a perfect example. It's one of my favorite albums, but in 1991, it was behind some of these
2: things. Yep, and then you also had, what was it, Public Enemy's Apocalypse 91, The Enemy Strikes Back, another phenomenal record. So there's so many great records we left off the list, and we're sorry. But we also want to know what your five favorite records are from 1991. So please. Please share them with us.
1: You do that by sending us an email at imbalancedhistory@gmail.com at gmail.com. A lot of people are sending us emails, and that's cool. Or if you just feel like making a comment on Facebook or on Twitter or things like that, you can follow us. There and on Instagram, you can just put in imbalancehistory.com and go find that too. make sure you bookmark that and stay in touch there as well. There's all kinds of ways to reach out and touch us, Marcus. It's a strange little world we're living in in this podcast universe on Dark Dark Media. <laughs> <laughs>
2: hey,
1: you know, pretty soon we might actually be doing this podcast in person together instead of on Zoom.
2: That would be so nice.
1: It would because would be I like so sitting nice. across from you and you Me too. know. Well, we're vaccinated, so we're almost there.
2: We are almost there. So, yes, soon, hopefully this summer, we'll be recording in person.
1: That's his prediction. Vegas says,
2: yeah, we'll see, mister. We'll see how that early summer hey, hit goes.
1: Until I- the next episode of Five Favorites or whatever the hell else we come up with to do on this podcast. We'll sign off by uh, wishing you all the best as you make your way through this final stage or stages, uh, hopefully, of the pandemic. And uh, thanks for hanging with us and listening so much and telling a friend because apparently that's working because people are telling friends about our podcast. So we keep showing up in different places. Thank you very much. Time to go. I'm
2: Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this has been the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. 92%